Thank you, Nell. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we'd love to have them. If you'd pass them to the center aisle, we'll collect them. We'd be praying for you this week. And just welcome, for those that are visiting with us, we are really glad that you are here and would love to begin a friendship with you and how you can be a part of what God is doing in this congregation. We're truly excited about that. Well, this series uh, over the last few weeks has been really offered as an encouragement and an effort to equip the body of Christ at a time when confusion abounds concerning sexuality, marriage, gender, and roles. Uh, There's not a news cycle that goes by which doesn't include a reference to the craze of this assault upon God's design. Marriage has been redefined. Biological sex has now become inconsequential in in identifying male and female. Human anatomy determines uh, how, or excuse me, human autonomy determines how one identifies to the world. So if whatever you think or feel you are, you announce, and so everyone is to receive that as the final word. All of these developments are rebellion against God's design for human flourishing and show that we live in a dying culture. Why would I say that? That's a pretty strong word, a dying culture. I'm just basing that on Romans chapter one, which identifies the behavior of a culture in decline, the falling down of a civilization, Romans 1, 18 through 32. First, there's a sexual revolution, followed by a homosexual revolution, and then it leads and it self-destructs because there are no boundaries and no limits to what's on the table. John MacArthur's words are insightful commentary. Over the last several decades, we've seen a cultural shift back to that no shame mentality. The sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s and the homosexual revolution beginning in the 80s have made sexual perversion commonplace. Our culture is dominated and driven by all kinds of sexual deviance. And there's a push, if you'll notice, it's in the infantile stage, but there's a push culturally for this to make the mainstream that grown men attracted to women is to be received. It's part of the plus sign that keeps going and going and going. The church's paralysis by her immoralities is really a call for repentance. We began with that, a call for the church to repent I remember a quote from Billy Graham in 1965 in his book, World of Flame. He said, if America doesn't repent, God will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. When Sodom and Gomorrah became guilty of the same sins that we commit, God judged them with fire and brimstone. We cannot claim to be God's pets. The church broken over her sin and reliant on the grace of Jesus Christ is what the world needs to see right now and should respond, the church should respond to the present sexual insanity with conviction. We're not people who hold our finger in the wind, wanting the culture to inform what we're to believe. We're people of the book, we're people of the cross, we're people who follow Jesus Christ. God's people must enter into this issue and be informed, and the first order of business is a study on what, what the Bible says actually about all of these things, which has been the purpose of this series. 
This is not conviction based on emotion. This is not uh, an effort to uh, become better at name calling. I'm not interested in that at all. I'm interested in the truth. I'm interested in us living out the truth in our generation. We're seeing agendas that are moving forward with great power and a church without biblical conviction must awaken to her call. We must be a people of conviction and a people of courage. We must have courage to fulfill our prophetic role. We should not be looking at one another wondering what we do next. (laughs) We have our orders. We have our marching orders from our Savior. And that is to go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all people. And we're also to be not only people of conviction, not only people of resolve and courage, but people of compassion. God's people are to be redemptive people who have never forgotten how much God has forgiven us for our transgressions. We, like the Corinthians before us, have been washed from our sins. And we are called to go and sin no more. Our mission as a church is not to fix anyone, let alone adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, and onward, which Paul said to the Corinthians, and such were some of you, but you've been washed. And such were some of us, but we've been washed. We've been changed by the gospel. Should we not respond with compassion when we learn that 80% of all lesbians have been molested or otherwise mistreated by men? Should we not have some understanding that through humiliation and shame, through sexual abuse and destructive behaviors that hurts have come that have fostered same-sex attraction and other problems in people's lives? I think it should produce a sense of compassion without budging on the truth at all. More than ever, we need to be anchored in the truth of God's love, but for people really to know that we care about them. We've said in earlier messages, if you're struggling with any of these issues, there's no place we would rather you be than here with us, fellow sinners, hearing the word of God and getting our marching orders from that, rather than the culture which changes by the minute. So we've looked at the God's creation design, uh, God's design and creation, Genesis 1 through 3, and I'll just kind of highlight these for Maybe those who are coming in for the first time, you'll be caught up to speed maybe. But in the book of Genesis, it really establishes God's created order. He established in the human family biological differences in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said, be fruitful and multiply. And so Adam and Eve were image bearers uh, and co-regents of God's creation. Genesis 2 gives us vivid details of Genesis 1. God commanded Adam to cultivate it, cultivate the ground and to eat from it, but not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the first negative comes in creation when God sees it's not good for man to be alone. And so he created Eve And the scripture says, I will make a helper suitable for him, a helper suitable, a complement to him, to fulfill my creation mandate for him. Eve was Adam's spiritual equal, suitable for him. In a way, the hippopotamus and the giraffe and the rhinoceros were not. She was fit for him. So much so, the first song of the Bible is Adam seeing Eve and saying, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. 
Marriage was defined in the book of Genesis, one man, one woman for a lifetime. One man, one woman for a lifetime. Scripture emphasizes in Old and New Testament that because man was created first, he was given headship over the woman and creation. Adam named Eve in the book of Genesis, a privilege bestowed on those who have authority in the Old Testament. Their relationship at at this point was without sin, without resentments, without forgiveness issues, without sexual dysfunctions, without attitude problems. They were the only two who have ever known life on this earth under those circumstances, but sin has come and it changed everything. But this headship, this leadership that God gave to Adam predates this, or comes before this, the fall into sin. Sin has brought horrific consequences to everything, including male headship. God did not create Eve to be superior to Adam, neither did he design her to be his slave. He did give them a perfect relationship Man is the head willingly providing for her and she willingly submitting to him. Adam saw Eve as one with him in every respect. That was God's design for a perfectly glorious union. So a union, unity and yet distinction at the same time. Equality and distinction at the same time to fulfill a life purpose together. And from that we, we receive valuable input on how we're to view life and marriage and everything. Secondly, we looked at God's design in marriage and we took that into the New Testament of the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and flowing from his command on being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ, Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so we should not wonder that God says in the New Testament, marriage is to be held in honor among all people, really especially among the people of God, because it communicates Christ's union and his relationship with the church. It's not a throwaway institution. It's not an institution that's up for grabs on how you define it. God defined it from the very beginning, and woe to those who redefine it. And then he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And in this Ephesians 5 passage, he refers back to Genesis 2. He says in Ephesians 5.31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That was established in creation. Those are principles that you and I need to uphold now. These are things that we need to use as a part of our discipling now. What young couple coming together doesn't want to know happiness as they get married? And how much of that is short-circuited and undercut because these principles are ignored? Male and female are a spiritual equal with distinction and role. Paul said in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And so the roles, there are distinction in roles. Many marriages that manage to avoid divorce, John MacArthur writes, are nevertheless characterized by unfaithfulness, deceit, disrespect, distrust, self-centeredness, materialism, and a host of other sins that shatter harmony, prevent happiness, and devastate children. So we want to honor marriage. We want to be honest about sin, and we trust Jesus Christ 
in it all. So this whole issue of submission makes people nervous. Nothing could be more clear, though, with regard to the marriage relationship. Wayne Grudem and John Piper write, submission is the divine calling to a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and, and help carry it through according to her gifts. The submissive role of a woman was designed by God in creation and affirmed in God's judgment after Adam and Eve's sin. So it's a disposition to want to follow your husband. It's an inclination to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that communicates, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm for you. I'm grateful when you take initiative in our family, when you take responsibility for the issues of our family. I'm for you, I'm with you. It's a canopy of security over me that it, that it's not, that's not there when you're passive and you're checked out. I appreciate your leadership, your Christ-like leadership in our family. This submission, however, we would want to say clearly doesn't follow into sin. Piper says, what, what does submission say to a husband who wants to lead his wife into sin? We're not talking about slavery. We're talking about a godly submission here that offers exchange, that offers different viewpoints, that seeks to persuade, but nevertheless understands this delegated line. So what does submission say to a husband who is leading a wife into sin? Piper captures it well. It grieves me, she says. To him, it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond joyfully to your lead, but I can't follow you into sin. As much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage, Christ is my king. You think that's weighty? You think that's powerful? I think it's very powerful. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus show his love for the church? Friends, he died for the church. So one of the ways that puts this teaching on its head in the minds of many is we see the fallout of sin on men. And on the one end, they're irresponsible and lazy and checked out. And on the other end, they're what? Thugs and bullies and abusive bad boys. And we think this teaching is for somebody else. No, this is for the, this is for the people of God. We don't follow the outliers. We follow the principles and work that out in the grace of God. And there's so much confusion today concerning manhood and womanhood. These are terms that aren't even used in the culture at large. I think one of the biggest questions we need to be prepared to answer is when a son questions, Dad, what does it mean to be a man and not a woman? Or a daughter's question, Mom, what does it mean to be a woman and not a man? And I think the scripture gives us clarity in answering those questions. Biblical masculinity, again to Grudem and Piper, at the heart of mature manhood is a sense of kind, caring, and compassionate responsibility to lead, provide, to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways that are appropriate to a man's differing relationship to them. Godly men want to do that. What's biblical femininity? At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm and receive 
and nurtures strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationship. Affirming, receiving, nurturing, complimenting, fulfilling a life purpose together. And by the way, I would just remind us that in Ephesians that the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit comes right before all of these teachings with regard to marriage. Well, let's move on to this third category, and I want to give the lion's share this morning to God's design in the church. How do, how do these issues impact life in the body of Christ? I read to you 1 Timothy 2 a moment ago, and um, this is a, a letter, I, I think some of the greatest um, counsel I could give to young pastors, immerse yourself in the pastoral letters. Immerse yourself in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus because they're written to provide guidance into how the church is to function. Uh, Timothy was Paul's son in the ministry. They met on Paul's second missionary journey. He wanted Timothy to remain on in Ephesus. And you remember that Ephesus had a lot of spiritual challenges. He was placed there to confront error, which requires you to know what you're talking about. And it also requires you to have a backbone. And so he put Timothy in Ephesus. You'll remember the book of Ephesians has the section on the armor of God, on spiritual warfare. And the key verse, if you would look at 1 Timothy 3, is verses 14 and 15. Paul is saying, I hope to come to you. I want to come to you. I want to see you face to face. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. In other words, I'm writing Timothy so you'll know how to provide order in the church of God because it's important. It's the church of the living God. It's, the, it's a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so he begins in chapter 2 um, in the section that I want to bring to your attention. In verse 8, he, he's talking about the corporate gathering of the church He's not talking about the marketplace. He's talking about the gathering of God's people to serve and to worship the Lord. And he says in verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray. So the men should be leading out in the worship of the church, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, leading from a pure heart. And then he, he puts a, a pause there. And he goes into the section, verses 9 through 15, on women, which we'll come back to. But I'm wanting to look here at men because he pick, picks up with men in chapter 3 as he looks at the character qualities of those who would serve as pastor, overseer, elder, all the same office. And in chapter 3, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That is the one criteria we find in Scripture for a call to ministry. You desire to do it. So in my conversation with young pastors, thinking and entertaining the thought of a call to ministry is if you could sell insurance or be a lawyer or do something else, go do that. <laughs> because you really want to be called to this in the sense that I can't do anything else. This is what I need to be doing. I desire to do it. I want to do it. We all know what it's like following a leader who's in a position who doesn't really want to be there. You can see why that would be an undersell of the gospel. I think I've mentioned to you this elderly brother in our church who moved here from the north. He said, I had a, a pastor up north and he had retired 10 years ago. He just didn't know it. 
That hurts, doesn't it? That hurts. So there's a desire here. So he begins to talk about leadership in the church, and he speaks specifically uh, of those who would lead as pastors, as men. They're not marred by reproach, verse 2, meaning that doesn't mean they're perfect men who could serve. This is the idea, this, a reproach is something that can be grabbed on in their life, held up, and be a discredit to the gospel. Your pastor's a sinner. Well, no kidding, we know that. It's quite, a, quite different from, from saying, your pastor stole funds from the church, your pastor did this, your pastor created some sexual heinous sin. That's a reproach. The fact that he's a sinner, well, we know that and know it well, but that's not the disqualifier. That only amplifies his message that we need Jesus Christ and him crucified. He speaks of his moral character, a husband of one wife, verse two. He's a one woman man, he's a moral man. He's committed to one woman and that's the wife that he's married to, if he is married. Self-controlled, he's temperate. He's, he must be able to teach. Those who would serve as pastor, elder, overseer, must be able to teach, proclaim, the gospel and to defend the gospel. He's not a drinker, verse three. That means he's not known for his consumption of alcohol. He's not a fighter, verse three. He's not violent. I think the King James says a striker. He's not a striker. (laughs) He's not pugnacious. He doesn't resolve issues with his fists. He's gentle. He understands brokenness. He understands how sin works in people's lives, even his own. He's compassionate. He's gentle. He's not quarrelsome. Verse 3, he's not contentious. I know some pastors, they can't go a week without fighting with someone in the church. What are you doing? Enjoy the peace, brother. Why are you kicking the anthill? Why are you doing that? Not contentious. Not quarrelsome. Spiritually mature. I mean, all of the collective, the aggregate of these qualities speak of spiritual maturity. Verse 6 says that he must not be a recent convert. Why? Because he could become easily prideful and Satan could beat the life out of him, causing a lot of problems for everybody. That's the law living translation of that. Family leadership. He manages his own household well. He's got a reputation. He's well thought of by outsiders. That's not what drives his life. But when people think about him, they're not um, distracted by a convoluted life. So here he speaks of male leadership, specifically those who would serve as a pastor, limited to men. And now we go back to chapter chapter 2, verse 9, and we see um, the issue of women. And I want to break this down bit by bit in our closing moments together. One of the problem issues in the Ephesian church was the role of women. There was confusion, just like today. A church plagued by doctrinal and moral error brings confusion. Paul hints at this in 1 Timothy 5 when he said that some of the women, in verse 6 of that chapter, some of the women had left their purity and were living only for their pleasure. So the subject of 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15 is the gathering of the church in worship. Worship is the top priority of the church when gathered in the Lord's name. And so let's begin with breaking it down this way, the preparation for worship with regard to women. He says, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. See the principles here? Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. What does that mean? Well, 
let's, let's, let's walk through this. This conjunction likewise refers back to verse 8. It's related to it, the corporate gathering of the church. Paul is talking about how men and women should conduct themselves in worship. That's what we're doing right now when we gather. We get together, we greet one another, we encourage one another, we fellowship with one another. We lift our voice in praise to God with one another. We enter into his presence together. That's what he's speaking of here. He mentions here adorn. It means that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. It means to arrange or to put in order. Paul is saying that women should prepare themselves for worship. That's what he's saying. Modest means well-arranged, well-ordered. He mentions apparel or attire. It refers not just to clothing, but to the attitude of the heart, the demeanor. It captures the total preparation for worship involving the heart as well as what she wears. Her clothing should reflect a heart focused on God. And Paul mentions a specific problem, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly attire. The Bible's not forbidding braided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly attire. Um, What's being addressed here is the issue of the heart and the distraction. John MacArthur said in the first century, poverty was widespread. A wealthy person could dress in a style that was impossible for poor members to match. In contrast to today, where good clothing is relatively affordable for a large segment of society, a costly dress worn by a wealthy woman in the first century could cost up to 7,000 denarii, a denarii being a day's wages. And when a wealthy woman entered a church service and she had a fortune in her hair and her robe called attention to herself, what's everybody focusing on? Her hairdo and her clothes. That's the problem. So, in addition to expensive dresses, rich women would also display their wealth with uh, the jewelry and so forth. The Bible, again, doesn't forbid braids. It doesn't forbid gold or pearls or fine clothes. The issue is motivation. Are you calling attention to yourself is the idea. This isn't a call to wear a burlap sack to church. It's a, why am I dressing the way I dress? Am I accentuating parts of my body? I probably shouldn't be accentuating. Years ago, I read an article by this exasperated mother who had taken her junior daughter to a department store to get some clothes. And they had a section, and I'll use another word, but they had a section called the prostitute look in junior fashions. Can you imagine this? And They had gone there to get clothing, and the daughter was upset because she wanted what everybody else was wearing. You know how that goes. Those are fun conversations, aren't they? And she spoke with resolve, this mother did. She said, I don't care if my daughter pitches a hissy fit in the junior department at at the, at the department store. We're not doing the prostitute look. So I think there needs to be On the front, why am I dressing the way I'm dressing? Am I dressing to come to worship God or am I dressing to call attention to myself? That's the point. Am I accentuating parts of my body that could be a distraction to someone else? I think just to ask that question would be a big question to ask. What's my heart in all of this? Even if the culture is going this way, I got brothers in the body. Do I want to be a distraction to them? Do I want to distract anybody from the way, male or female, by the way I'm dressed? So this proper, moving on to proper 
um, preparation for worship, moving to the proper motivation, but with that which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Godly character. This is a woman who walks in humility and puts anything uh, off that doesn't, uh, that doesn't please the Lord. She's sensitive to not grieving the Holy Spirit and self-control, controlling one's desires. Notice next the role of women in the gathered church in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. This wasn't real popular in the first century. Women were not allowed in the gathering. They were put off in the back to do other things. And Paul is saying here, that's got to change. The women need to be a part of the learning process of the church. Let the women learn with all submissiveness. It's a command. It's an imperative. Let the women learn. Why? Because they have teaching to do in the body. They have teaching to do and equipping to do in their homes. They have other women to teach. They have other roles to play. Teaching was a top commitment to the gathering of the church in Acts 2.42. They continued to devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to teaching. In Titus 2, actually, the older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. How can you teach what is good when you don't know what is good? Let the women learn. He says in that full verse, let the women learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then he, he speaks of the, spirit, the spiritual equality of this. What does this mean? Well, women had the same responsibilities as men in the Old Covenant. They had the responsibility to obey the law, the Ten Commandments. They had the, they had the responsibility to teach the law. Um, in Proverbs, it says, my son... Uh, Keep your father's commandments and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They took the same vows as men did in many respects. The Nazarite vow included both men and women in number six. They had the same access to God. They were spiritually equal with different roles. And so in, in the gathering of the church, they're to learn with all submissiveness. Paul said to the Corinthians and 1 Corinthians 14 34 let the women keep silent in the churches there was disruption because of this lack of understanding that doesn't mean that women should never speak you know that's not the environment around here women share all the time solos testimonies participate in in in, in small groups together in a, in a healthy situation this isn't something where you're having scrimmage wars all the time this is just understood And people operate in the boundaries of it, affirming one another's giftings. So you're wondering, aren't you? Is it okay for a woman to serve as a pastor? To be an elder? An overseer? To be the spiritual leader of the congregation? I think the text clearly says no. No. And I want you to notice that Paul bases his argument in verse 13, not on cultural differences. Where does he take us in verse 13? <laughs> he, takes us, he takes us to Adam, which transcends culture. He bases his argument in creation. This isn't some cultural whim that comes and goes. This is God creative, God's creative design. Some years ago, I wrote an article um, that was published in a number of different v- venues. And it was titled, um, But Sister Cindy's a Better Preacher Than Brother Bob. 
And I remembered my first year at the University of Kentucky walking through the free speech area and this older couple was there and Sister Cindy had her Bible open and she was waxing eloquent on the sins of college co-eds. It really was quite a mockery. And I remember walking into the, into the area thinking, wow, that is a bizarre sound. I've never heard this sound before. And it reminded me of my growing up in, in my neighborhood of my, my friend's mom who would yell at him early in the morning to take the trash to the curb. That's the first thing that came to my mind hearing Sister Cindy preach. Well, that's certainly an aberration. There are skilled, gifted women who, who, who take the word of God and, and, and teach it powerfully and effectively. The issue is not skill. You may say, you know, well, you know honestly, Pastor, I listen, to, uh, I listen to this one woman and I enjoy listening to her more than I listen to you. That may be so, but that's not the point. It's out of order in the gathering of the church. So Sister Cindy may be a better, a better preacher than Brother Bob and, and Brother Jim, but that's not the point. God has established these guidelines for the gathering of the church, and it's not in God's uh, plan for his church to operate other than that. And so, well, you know, we have this steamroller movement that's moved for 50 years, and this is commonplace now. You, sound, you, you seem so out of step. So be it. But, you know, I, I, I was just thinking, if I were a father sitting out in the congregation today, and, and I was sitting next to one of my daughters, and we went home for lunch, and then I thought, you know, lunchtime, you know, I, I, saw, bro, I saw Brother Jim up there preaching, or I saw the pastor preaching, and I could just see you there in a few years. Would that be proper vision casting for my daughter? I don't think it would be. In light of these texts that are rooted in creation and God's design, is that speaking disparagingly uh, to, to my sisters in Christ? No. It's that God has established such a distinction and we would be foolish to ignore it. Some may ask, you know, on the theological landscape, aren't there bigger fish to fry? With a world of 7 billion people and with over 1 billion or more plus having never heard the name of Jesus, why are you even talking about this? And the words of Martin Luther come to my mind when he said, I would rather the heavens fall than one truth of God be lost. I believe this issue of understanding the biblical roles between men and women in the church is critical to the health and well-being of the body of Christ, of marriage, and everybody. And we ignore it to our peril. How we do theology on this issue reveals a lot of our view of Scripture. I fear we're driven more by the culture and pragmatism than by submission to the biblical text. And to this issue, the pragmatist pragmatists would say, she's just better. Let her do it. And I think those who are principled would say, no, we need to wait for God to meet this need. We need to be thankful for what he has in order. Certainly men and women are of equal worth in the presence of God. We are fellow heirs of the grace of life and bestowed with spiritual gifts with different functions in the body and in marriage. 
Now, let me mention one other thing and we'll close in this strangely silent congregation. The contribution of women as heirs of the grace of life. There's that feeling where you're like, are they loading up their bow and arrows? What's going on here? I'll find out in a minute. So the contribution of women as heirs of the grace of life. Look at 13 through 15. Chapter 2, 13 through 15. I've made the point already, observation, that Paul appeals to Adam. That's creation. That's Genesis 1 through 3. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so just what he's talking about here is Eve's uh, deception in Genesis 3. Adam, Adam is responsible for that. It's interesting. It's, they both take a hit depending on where you look in the New Testament. In Romans 5, in Adam we all sin. He's held responsible. He's the federal head. And here Paul is talking about uh, that woeful moment when Eve was tempted and Adam followed. Um, he, he holds her here for being deceived. So how is that stigma lifted? How is that stigma lifted? Um, and the answer is through motherhood. Certainly, it's not God's plan for every woman to have a child. Uh, But in a general way, this is the contribution that godly mothers make in bringing up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They bring up their children in the love of Christ. And Paul is speaking here of saving not in a salvation way, but of being redeemed and rescued. Um, This uh, blemished uh, uh, account through motherhood. A a woman's great contribution comes in motherhood. This is a general observation. And among the human story, Paul is saying a woman's contribution comes to its highest level through motherhood as she continues in faith, love, and holiness. And only a godly mother can raise godly children. So as a general rule, motherhood, as described here, erases the stigma of Eve's failure in the garden with quite a redemptive witness of God's grace. So what do we do when we come to a text like this? I would just affirm to you that it's written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and it instructs the church and says to women and men that we're to receive God's role that we must not seek the leadership role in the church that is not ours, but to honor God with the gifts that he's given to us in the body. This is not a sidebar issue. Again, I think it's at the health of what it means to be the people of God. I'll mention again the Kostenbergers. They said, we're convinced that it's vital to wrestle with our identity as men and women for the sake of healthy marriages, families, and churches, but more importantly, for the true expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. And that's why this church exists. That's why we should care about the health of the church is because it communicates the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, we spend time in texts like this, but we want you to know as we come the foundation of it all is God's redeeming work through Jesus Christ. If you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, we hold him up to you. He is worth every ounce of your energy and devotion. He is the one we bow to. He is the one we look to. 
He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross, a substitutionary death to pay for our sins. And he rose again from the dead. He's a living savior and he will come to live within you. What a, what a blessing that is in salvation to be saved from our sins and to may, be made right with God, to know him and to walk with him. If that is a need on your heart today, we would love to visit with you. We would want to invite you back uh, to keep coming and to be a part of what God is doing in this church, which has really in this small congregation uh, a reach around the world. In these closing moments, let's give our heart to him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for passages like this that um, challenge us to think through even when we're in the minority as far as the culture goes. Since when has that not been the case? And we pray, Lord, that as we close out this service, we would do so in devotion and in love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.